Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. It feels like many moons have passed since we've last spoken, thanks not only to my indolence, but also the TLS summer double issue. Having a double issue in the summer, by the way, seems shamelessly to have been designed by the magazine industry to allow more time for staff to go on holiday. Some people at the TLS call it Reading Week. Do you call it Reading Week, Theo? Um, I do, yeah. I have heard it called really. Yeah. So speaking of, I was here for it. I should point out. Oddly, speaking of inappropriate <laughs> holidays. <laughs> just hold on. I'm just trying to remember who it is, who who it is who's missed a number of podcast episodes recently, and who in fact was away for the 100th episode. Who uh, was that? Because I don't think it was me. I think if we were to count up all the podcast episodes, I would still be ahead of you. I don't think so. Really. Yeah, but I don't have time to do that because I'm too busy <laughs> you're, working. You're too busy, uh, <laughs> too busy are, reading. Are you going away in se- the end of September? No. No? October? Yes. <laughs> Where are you going? You're going somewhere for a long time, aren't you? Somewhere cool. Uh, I'm going for 10 days, yes. Yeah, lovely. So, yeah. lovely. <laughs> Make sure you are subscribing to the podcast and do feel to go back and count and see who has been in it more. Certainly me. <laughs> let us know either way and make sure you subscribe to the TLS as well you can google TLS subscriptions and get on board this week it has been 25 years since Andrew Motion published his biography of Philip Larkin it's been reissued with a new introduction which includes how the poet apparently made contact with his biographer from beyond the grave be very afraid and then listen to Andrew tell the story and he's then going to read us a passage from his beautiful elegy for Larkin first published in the TLS in 1986. Storytelling and diversity is the subject of the latest essay on children's fiction from Imogen Russell Williams. She'll be in the studio to give some recommendations and talking of the fanciful, indeed the farcical, Zoe Williams pops in to give her verdict on the terrible political tradition that is Prime Minister's Questions. Larkin's headstone in a cemetery on the outskirts of Hull could scarcely be more understated. On its plain white face are the words Philip Larkin, 1922-1985, to writer. 
This seems right for a poet whose verse is often described as traditional, plain, democratic. It seems of a piece with a man who often framed himself as being left behind by the cultural moment, someone for whom life was a concatenation of disappointment, or in his word, unsuccess. What was there to celebrate? That's one image of Larkin, but there are others. There's the Larkin who was very much of his cultural moment, the famous or infamous Britishness of his poems carrying, as Lisa Jardine put it diplomatically, a baggage of attitudes. Elsewhere, she was less reserved, calling him a casual, habitual racist and easy misogynist. So yes, there's Larkin the womaniser too, who at one point in the mid-1970s had three women on the go at once. There's Larkin the unrelenting pessimist, Larkin the Eeyore-ish national treasure, Larkin the greatest post-war British poet, or even, according to a survey by the Poetry Book Society, the nation's best-loved poet, full stop. Needless to say, plainness can mask a wealth of contradictions, and when in 1985, at the age of 63, Larkin died, it fell to Andrew Motion, one of Larkin's literary executors and himself a poet of no small renown, of course, to tease out the strands and weave them back together in a biography. First published in 1993, Philip Larkin, A Writer's Life, is reissued this week by Faber, and Andrew Motion joins us on the line from Baltimore now. I'm wondering if you could start, as you start your piece in this week's TLS, in fact, by explaining how you came to be charged with with this task. Well, I went to work at the university in Hull in 1976. That was my first job. I was 24 years old. And even though it makes me feel slightly vulnerable to say this, there's really, honestly, no doubt in my mind at all and wasn't at the time that one of the reasons that I wanted to go to Hull was that I thought I might meet him because I'd read his poems at school and I'd already got very fond of them. The man who taught me English at school was a fantastically enthusiastic reader of Larkin and had sort of put Larkin in my way, so to speak. And once that had happened, I'd got very fond of him, of the work my, myself. So I went with the expectation of meeting him and as soon as I got there and said to my then colleagues in the English department, that I hoped very much that I would meet him. They all gave me a funny look and said, well, that's not going to happen because he hates everybody and he especially hates everybody who works in the English department because he thinks that we all talk nonsense about poetry. This is just after structuralism and so on had come across the channel and got into an English department. So he's probably right. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> up to a point. So actually the sort of generally bell letterist mood did rather need rather a kicking, I think. So anyway, that's what he thought. So I moped around for the first few weeks and was eventually rescued from that by my then head of the department, a man called John Chappell, who took me to meet Philip in the university staff bar, which is where he used to drink most lunchtimes. This is in the days when people used to drink at lunchtime, which of course they don't do now. Um, and that's how we first met each other. And then other meetings followed from, from that. And I say a little bit in this new introduction about what happened during that first encounter and and indeed in the subsequent ones too. Well, he, he, and he never asked you to be his biographer, or, or not, not directly. It was Monica, no, the woman for whom he settled no, on monogamy, yeah, who did. exactly. I mean, they must have had that conversation, I think. No, you're right. He never did say, would I write his biography? And as I also say in my piece, if I ever found myself thinking anything like that, I suppressed it pretty hard, because it would have got in the way rather disastrously of of our evolving friendship, I think. If Philip thought that I was hurrying off home after all our encounters, mm. kind of write down things that he'd said, or was sitting there making mental notes all the time, it just would have screwed up the natural course that a friendship might take. He, he did, though, call himself your subject. <laughs> yeah, yes, he did. Well, 
before I wrote the biography. And in fact, when he was still alive and well, I wrote a little critical study of him in a series that I think Chris Bigsby at UEA generally was the general editor of. I mean, Blake Morrison wrote a book about Heaney. I wrote about, but about Larkin. There was a little kind of group of these things. Um, and before I said yes to doing that, I asked Philip whether he that it would mind if I did it, and he was actually very helpful about it while I did write it. I'm not in the sense of giving me material and so on, but he read it after I'd written it, um, and he made various little kind of editorial suggestions about this and that. So he knew that I was interested in writing about him, but as I say, it was never put in the foreground, the idea that I might write the biography. However, before he died, in fact, I might say as he was dying, because he was very ill during this time, I was writing what became my first biography, which was a book about the Lambert family. And that he read that, and I remember him bringing me up and talking about it. Um, so it's possible that he, and even more possible, in fact certain, I think, that Monica felt that because I'd done that book, I in some sense knew how to write a biography. And but, I, I had a bit of a track record. But is it possible, I mean, or obviously it's possible, how does it affect you when you're writing a biography of a friend rather than a biography of a subject who you yeah, happen to be well, interested a, in? Right. Well, that was a very urgent question for me, and it's joined to another question, which is that, which I'll introduce, if I may, just by saying that when I, when I went to have that meeting with Monica in her house, during which she said, I want Anthony Thwaite to edit the poems and do an edition of the letters, and I, and I want you to write the lies. She then did two other things. One was to literally, as young people say, literally <laughs> throw across the room his dress book with kind of little pieces of paper fluttering out of it and said, everybody you need to talk to is in there. And once I'd sort of put that back together again and put it in my pocket or whatever I did, she then said, now you must go upstairs and look at the, the room under the stairs. There was a kind of little attic boat-shaped room under the stairs in which Philip had kept correspondence and actually pretty much everything. And he'd sort of documented his own life in a very meticulous way, as you might expect a librarian to do. And I can remember looking at that, which is the beginning of my answer to your question, Stig, really, looking at that and thinking, everything seems to be here, so what isn't here? What does my friendship with him, given that I only knew him for the last 10 years of his life, and what does this apparently complete representation of his past life, what does that leave out of the account? And it, it was sort of there and then, I think, that I decided that, of course, I would use my friendship with him and my affection for him to sort of power me through certain parts of the story. But really, I had I had simultaneously to realize that there were large parts of his life, and especially in the 10 years before I'd known him, when I would just have to regard him as somebody that I never had met, never had known, and, and approach it as I would pretty much as I did when I was writing about John Keats, actually. You, you're, in other words, you know, as a stranger. Your biography is credited with changing the way that Larkin was, was thought of. Were you, were you very aware mm. of having a popular image yes. to, and what that was and, and how to work against it. Yeah, I, I was, to be honest, I mean, for two reasons. One is that Anthony's edition of the letters had already come out by the time that my biography came out, and that did knock down quite a lot of the preconceived images of Philip that had grown up over the years. But I think even if that hadn't happened, indeed, even if that book hadn't e existed, I would very strongly have felt that there was a job to do to change the relationship between the way in which people thought about and talked about the poems and what I reckon was their reality. I mean, even in his lifetime, did people really think that this person found 
being with women easy and light foreign travel and might not have some grumpy views and did they really think that he that the whole thing about Mrs. Thatcher and all that was a kind of joke I mean there was a jokey element to a lot of it but I always thought during his life that the poems were much tougher much darker in all kinds of respects than the kind of as you said yourself in your in your introduction the sort of you know, nation's favourite poet image allowed to be the case. But by revealing so, the manager, you're to a certain extent exposing your friend, your mentor, to yes. to criticism. Yes. Criticism, and, and you know, people took it hard, didn't they? When this biography first came out, so, and yes. indeed the Thwaites well, letters as well, people people thought yeah, you'd, they you'd, did. you'd done a number on him. Yes, um, well, some people did. I mean, that wasn't the sort of entirely the view, but of course, you're right. A lot of people did did say that. I felt in the teeth of that, that it was an act of affection to speak the truth as I saw it about somebody who himself was absolutely ruthless in the business of saying what was in his own mind to say. So there was simply that sort of level of trying to, as it were, be like him about it, actually. But at the same time, I felt that if I were to suppress these things that I reckoned were the truth, um, that they would be bound to come out come out over time as they as these things always do and it would be actually much better to give the whole picture first of all and then people could kind of get used to that and rather than having to adapt it as i must say has rather been the case with ted hughes for instance after his death adapted over time it seemed just a kind of better more straightforward more honest way of dealing with things i also thought that the poems were quite good enough thank you very much to survive whatever storms there might blow around them and that has turned out to be the case and were his friends reconciled to it in the end martin amos wrote that piece didn't he that that yeah, well, uh, he, he was more yeah. concerned about the, the letters i think in the in the first instance than the biography was, i think yes i mean martin this is a slight exaggeration but it's not much an exaggeration that there were two very tough reviews of my book among many that were not tough in fact were very nice about it and they were both written by somebody called Amos. I mean, <laughs> one was Martin and one was his father. And I think it probably was difficult for them. And I'm not trying to let myself off all the charges that they made, but I think it probably was difficult for them to square two things. One was the Larkin that they actually hadn't known, that even though they had been very good friends of his, because Philip, as we've been, already been saying, was somebody who did lead his life in very strictly contained compartments. So there was that. Um, but there was also the business that we in our own way know in certain contexts, which is having somebody that we know and are fond of given over to the public um, yeah. in, a, in a sort of candid way, and that being a shock to the system. It's, it's an impossible question, really. How do you think he would have wanted to be remembered? I'm struck firstly by the fact that he chose writer mm. rather than poet on, on his... Um, yes, that's interesting. Actually, it was Monica who, who chose that. Oh, really? Because he started out wanting yes. to be a novelist, didn't he? That's right, yes. So, and I think she was sort of picking up on, on that. I'm interested in the way that he yeah, he would have wanted to be remembered because he's he, famous for turning down the, yes. the Poet Laureateship. He declined an OBE. That's, all of these things that people have absolutely. cited as well, proof he declined of... the OBE because he didn't think it was grand enough. Would he have accepted a knighthood, do you think, Andrew? If it, I wonder. Yeah, if, if, if it had been okay, <laughs> Philip, it's going to be Sir Philip Larkin or Lord Philip Larkin of Hull. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about the, the laws, but I think he might very well have accepted a knighthood. Well, um, I mean, he, he did. He did play but, quite an active part in his 
his, you know, his image making because he, he asked for his diaries to did. be to be yeah. destroyed and certain other papers right. and absolutely. Yes, I mean the, the the story about the papers is a very complicated one because when he first suggested to me that I might become one of his um, involved in the administration of the estate, I you know don't die, but I will I will do this and I feel very honoured to be asked. Don't die, but I warn you that I am not somebody who will find it at all easy to throw anything away. And he said, don't worry about that. When I see the Grim Reaper coming up the front path. I'll go to the bottom of the garden and, and like Thomas Hardy, I remember him saying, have a big bonfire and get rid of everything that I don't want people to see. So I said, well, that's fine. But just as long as you know that anything you leave, I will keep. And if it seems right to publish it, then I'll publish it and so on and so forth. And he said, okay, and that's how we left it. Actually, as things turned out, he did see the Grim Reaper coming up the front path for at least six months. And for the human reasons that I find very easy to understand, I must say, because none of us want to admit that we're about to die. He didn't have that bonfire. So everything except the diaries was there in the house at the time of his death. And the diaries were destroyed very soon after by the low-fed secretary, Betty Macarith, <laughs> on Monica's, with Monica's sort of connivance, as it were, because as Philip was carried out of the, his house for the last time, he asked Monica to make sure they were destroyed in my opinion, the greatest loss to English literature probably ever, actually. I mean, much a much greater loss than Byron's diaries, I, I think. But, and we might come back to it. Really? Why, why? They were destroyed. It's an interesting point, though. Sorry, go on. Why? Because well, so much was uh, preserved. What, 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 what did we lose, do you think, there? Well, I think what... I mean, so far as one, we can reconstruct, and of course it's impossible to do that in any detailed way simply because they're not there. The diaries were did have some kind of documentary function that we one expects a diary to have and in one of the poems actually he talks about looking back through the diaries and we know that when he got jammed as a writer in the last few years of his life that he considered mining the diary for poem subjects and as it were turning bits of the diary into poems it didn't happen that it didn't work but it, it was in his mind to do such a thing so there was that documentary element that we expect diaries to have but i think that all the indications from the little snippets that survive in the bindings of these diaries, which were the only bits not put through the shredder. It was a kind of log of the dark side of the moon. I mean, I think there was a lot about sex in it, speculations about sex with other people, a lot about sex with himself, a lot of, of kind of miserable gurning on about this and that. So in a nutshell, I think what we lost in the destruction of these things was, and especially given what we've already been saying about his extraordinary capacity for telling the truth as he saw it, I think we lost the most candid account that I can imagine being given of the things that people usually prefer not to talk about. We could um, talk about this for a long time, Andrew, but we've got two yeah. things we need to talk about before sure, you sure, go. Sure. One will be to hear a poem sure. shortly, but you do need to tell everyone the story of Raymond Cass and the afterlife <laughs> of... Curious Phil case of Dr Cass. Yeah, and the, and the <laughs> afterlife yeah. of Philip Larkin. <laughs> well... Well, it's interestingly related, perhaps, to what we were saying about how did what do I think he would have felt and how did I feel about <laughs> yeah. him being my friend and all this, because it's certainly true that in the seven years or something that it took me to write the book, I had a lot of very, very anxious dreams about what I was doing and about him, and I would nearly always wake up from a dream in which I'd been in the, some room with him and I'd been sort of spilling the beans, as it were, and... I would look up in a lecture theatre and there it would be and it was that was my nightmare that I would have, in other words, that I had somehow in my dream done in, in life 
what I would never have done in life and it would only have considered have done in death. So spookily, as Dame Edna would say, one on the very day that I finished writing the book, I got in a jiffy bag a cassette with a covering letter from this guy called Raymond Cass, who was Philip's hearing aid doctor. Um, and in his, <laughs> and I'm adapting a little bit, but in his letter to me, that original letter, he said something like, he had a kind of nasal voice. It sounded like Mr. Whisty in that the Peter Cook sketch with yesteryear, you know. The letter said something like, "Uh, Dear Dr. Marsh, knowing that you were writing the life of Dr. Larkin, I thought it only reasonable to introduce myself. I am, if I may use a figure of speech, to a literary man, um, a hearing aid specialist, and with my left hand, to continue the figure of speech, I am a spiritualist, and I have made contact with the spirit of Dr. Larkin, and I thought you would like to hear our conversations thus far. (laughs) So actually, they they weren't really conversations. They were little sort of snippets from the ether. The first one he said, are you there, are you there Dr. Larkin? And there was a very unconvincing noise, like a bat whizzing around the house, going, Philip, Philip, Philip. By the way, I don't know what we're inviting to happen to us in having this conversation. <laughs> Feeling very uneasy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, come out of the light, come out of the light. Exactly. And then he said, Raymond said, what are you doing in the afterlife? And the voice, which did sound weirdly like his and had exactly that eel thing, said tramping, tramping. An interesting word, a sort of Hardy-esque word, the tramp woman's tragedy and all that. So not an implausible word for him to use. And then finally he said, you know, do you miss your friends? And the same rather eerie voice said, only one friend in a sort of crossway, which I took to be Monica, I must say. Anyway, so I wrote back saying, that's riveting, thank you so much. If you have any more contact, do let me know. Not really knowing quite what I was dealing with here. And then what have however many months it was later, when again, spookily, on the day that finished copies arrived, the very day that finished copies arrived, another jiffy bag, another letter, and this one said, uh, Dear Andrew May, I, this is, of course, in the days when before people call you by your first name, whether they knew you, know you or not, so, uh, Dear Andrew May, I... I'm expecting that you had uh, finished writing The Life of Dr. Locke, and I thought it only reasonable to assume that he would have read it himself, so I've taken the liberty of asking him his opinion of it. <laughs> and then he said, do not be distressed, which was the funniest thing of all, actually, though I don't think that the late Raymond Cass knew how funny this was. It said, do not be distressed if you feel that the voice of Dr. Locke in itself sounds distressed. It is my experience that the spirits of the recently departed do sound distressed, especially if as I believe was the case with Dr. Larkin, there was no expectation of there being an afterlife. <laughs> so he was angry that he found him, he'd fetched up in an afterlife, and he, and, yeah, but he'd spent the time reading your book. Uh, and what, exactly. was his, what was the verdict? He said, very satisfactory. <laughs> Which actually, coming from him, was quite high praise, so yeah. I, was, I was very happy with that. I hope they got on the cover or the back. <laughs> well, why not stop there? Loved I mean, by why Philip stop Larkin there? himself. I mean, Yes, exactly. Or right, rollicking, good read, Geoffrey Chaucer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, we're going to leave it uh, there, but we thought you might read as a, a poem that you you wrote soon. Was it soon after his it was death? February the seventh, nineteen yes. eighty six, is when we published it. So it yes. must have been very oh, well, soon after. Thank you. It was. Well, actually, what happened was that pretty much the day after Philip died, one of your predecessors, Stig, Jeremy Treglone, rang me or wrote to me and said, knowing that I been a friend of Phillips, would I like to write something about him? And I'm not sure that he actually anticipated that it would be a poem. Anyway, I thought the best way to do it was to write a poem about it. So what I did was just pull together some memories of him, quite a lot of which actually end up in the biography, and some of which I've gone back to in this little forward to the new version of it that 
as you say, is just about to come out. And this is a, the bit that I'll read now. So it's sort of a dozen or so little anecdotal bits and pieces, and this is one of them. The, the poem is called This Is Your Subject Speaking, which was what he used to say on the telephone when he rang me up when I was writing the, that little critical book that came out during his lifetime. On one of those evenings which came out of nowhere and one drink led to another, at well past midnight, rain stinging the window, the gas fire burbling, you suddenly asked me if you could meet one poet, they could be living or dead, which one would you choose? Partly to please you, I told you Hardy. Hardy, all he would say is motion, one of the Essex motions, perhaps. Then came your candid guffaw. And just for a second or so, before I laughed too, I heard the gramophone arm we'd forgotten, still slithering round and round on a record, steadily brushing the label and filling the room with a heartbeat. Bump, 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 bump. The background to that is that we used to spend quite a lot of evenings listening to recordings that he'd made of himself and others reading poems that he liked. Um, I presumed it must be jazz. <laughs> well, there was a good deal of that as well, but interestingly, I think, and perhaps perhaps because it's not something that you expect him to have spent much time doing, he loved hearing poems aloud and had this really quite large collection of recordings, I mean, some well-known ones, but also lots of recordings that he'd made himself of bits of Hardy and so on and so forth. Well, Andrew Motion, thank you. Thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there, sadly. Um, I should say that listeners can find this full elegy. We're republish, republishing it on the website, linking it from, oh, from your, nice. from your new nice. piece thank this you. week. So um, thank thanks you. again. And, and um, the book, and the book, uh, it's, the, it's the reissue. It's Philip Larkin, A Writer's Life. Andrew, your book, it's out this week, I think. I think that's right. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you so much for your interest. Thank, thank you. you. Nice thank you for coming you. on, Andrew. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Here's a fact for you. In 2017, just 1% of British children's books published featured black, Asian and minority ethnic protagonists. This in a country where up to a third of school children might be held to come from an ethnic background. Things seem to be getting worse, not better, and the UK may be worse at representation than the United States, a nation not tremendously famous for its racial equality. Imogen Russell-Williams, in one of her imperious quarterly assessments of the genre, has looked at books that move away from traditional white characters, including those that tell stories using geometric shapes and animals. She's here in the studio now, rootling through the paper to see the article. Imogen, hello. Hi. I found it now. I'm all good. We're all good. (laughs) I was very surprised by this first statistic. Were you surprised that so few characters of colour appear in British books? Yes, I was very surprised. I have to say, I thought that there would be a shortfall, but I think it sent a bit of a shockwave through children's publishing. And there's also been some some very knee-jerk, hysterical response to the the news coverage that it's had as well. Um, In what way? People have been... Anonymous internet commenters Uh. have been very irate at the thought that we should notice this and suggest that it's something that needs to be redressed. The Centre for Literacy and Primary Education, I know, has copped a lot of flack for really? daring to, yes, to, to run the report in the first place and then to point out that it exists. So it's, it's, it's been interesting. It's sort of, it's turned over a log and there's been a lot of stuff squirming underneath there. I'm surprised it hasn't happened almost by accident. You'd have just thought that 1% is so smaller percentage it feels like there must be deliberate exclusion it does feel like that but then that is very strange because the piles of books that I get sent I would have thought I would have put it at a higher figure than that but it may also be that in the stuff that I'm looking at there's a degree of selection going on there I think part of the problem as well is that in that 1% that has been protagonists, they're not necessarily getting a lot of marketing muscle and push behind them either. So you first of all, you've not got very many, and then they're not really making waves. And then you get a bit of a vicious cycle going on where people say, well, there's not a market, people aren't buying them. But that's because they're not being brought to people's and attention. Is that because there is a perception, which there used to be in film, which has notably been changed around something like Black Panther, that if you put a a black person on the cover, a black child on the cover, it will sell fewer copies than if you put a white one. There has absolutely been that perception. It's not something that uh, that anyone would like to fess up to. And now, I think, uh, reassuringly, we're beginning, as you said, to see that, no, this does not spell box office or publishing disaster, quite the reverse. Um, There is a market, and if you book them, they will come. If you put it there, people will flock to it. And has the situation, has it got worse? Or, I mean, because in in your piece you cite a few a few books from decades ago, you know I think. What? I'm so glad you just said The Runaways by Ruth Thomas. I read when I was a very young kid, and I can still remember them. They had fish and chips. Yes. They had, they had, they had £20 notes, these two runaways, and I remember them buying fish and chips and going into an abandoned house and eating it. I can still... Yes. I can still... I've not read that book for 30-odd years, and I can still smell the fish it and chips. It evokes such but strong I'm not sure I even knew memories. he was black. Well, I, I don't remember him as black. Was, was, was that a big deal that, he, that it had a black lead? It was not a particularly big deal. And if you look at the cover of the book now, it's just there they are, both of them. One is white and one is black. And that's just, you know, here we go. Here's a Carnegie winner. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a great book. Yes, we've moved backwards. And things have got worse, which is astonishingly dispiriting. There's been an awful lot of diversity panels and well-meaning hand-wringing, but actually the walking the walk has not been present. And again, I'm... 
I am mixed race myself and growing up in the 80s, I never had a sense that there were no books with people like me or people who might be a bit like me or that there wasn't a gamut of representation because there was bold, brave, innovative publishing going on and there was an understanding that it was very important that children should have both windows and mirrors. They should both see themselves reflected um, in literature and they should be empathically drawn through a window into someone else's experience. And now I fear that the sort of the, the focus on sales, but also a, sh a short sighted failure to realise that actually it is not going to cut off your sales if you have a greater degree of, of diverse representation. So a good book's just a good book, ultimately. Exactly, a good is book is, you've got, is a good book. You've got to believe that. So tell us some examples of, of you, you mentioned American ones primarily in your piece, but perhaps tell us a yes. bit about American ones and British ones. Yes, I've, I've, I've been very celebratory about some truly top-notch American ones, particularly, I think probably my favourite is, um, is a verse novel by Elizabeth Acevedo called The Poetex, which is just... It's so compelling from, from the word go and it's a highly specific experience but it's also instantly transporting and beautifully crafted poetry. It's about Jumara who is Latina Dominican growing up in Harlem. Uh, her mum's very devout. She is she draws male attention but she's not sure whether she's comfortable with that or whether sometimes it's exciting and her mum is, as far as her mum's concerned, Jumara particularly is like a punishment to her for not having become a nun so it's, it's sort of the adult adolescent rebellious experience and then some but in these extraordinary poems it really is it's one of my books of the year without a doubt I am conscious though that in this piece I celebrate a lot of American stuff and that is quite rude because there is amazing <laughs> stuff going on in British publishing um, and many amazing um, BAME authors uh, it, it feels rude to go BAME in that way but Shorthand, there we go. It's the, it's the one we use. It's not ideal. A new inclusive publisher called Knights of has just launched. They've published their first book, which is called Knights and Bikes um, by Gabriel Kent. And it is just this rip-roaring, splendid riot with two crazy girls. Um, it's set in, in Cornwall and there's a goose called Captain Honkers and there is a very brightly coloured bike called Neon Justice and there are foam swords. And this is really... And who's aimed at this? Is what, ten... That would be five to eight, I'd say. Say, okay. um, but it's a it's a little stunner and the thing you notice about it is not that it's inclusive it's not oh look this is very worthwhile and is, and is ticking lots of boxes it's that it's crazy and anarchic fun and instantly accessible and really 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 jolly and also tapping into a kind of video game um, immediacy and accessibility and that's what makes it great. So Knights of Fantastic, Lantana Publishing have a really beautiful book called You're Safe With Me with words by um, Chicha Sounder and illustrations by Poonam Mystery, which is they're so geometric and compelling. It's this perfect little bedtime book. A gorgeous debut earlier this year was Muhammad Khan's I Am Thunder, which is for young adults, which was amazing job of taking on all of these capital I issues but without ever writing an issues book this is dealing with what it's what it is to be Muslim and female and expected to be obedient and expected to follow one set of expectations and also to be poor in Britain and then to rub up against this really vexed question of terrorism and how you're pigeonholed and all the rest of it and I've just seldom read a more compelling book and again you know that's an awful lot of issue pitfalls that you yeah. could fall into you could become tub thumping but no it's called I am thunder. And it's lots wonderful. of people saying, I was talking to a children's author the other day, that almost if you do a book that touches on issues, there's going to be a host of people saying kids shouldn't be exposed to that. You shouldn't, that they're the very issues you shouldn't be writing about because it might cause 
children to think in areas that they shouldn't be thinking in, which of course seems to be the exact opposite of, of the yes, truth. Yes, I mean this is this is obviously abundantly wrong-headed because where else can children can children and young adults encounter and discuss issues like this in safety in uh, in an environment where you're supposed to be doing some some weighing up and thinking and discussing. You've got to be able to discuss things that are risky without sort of being smacked with a stamp that says prevent instantly. Because otherwise, how are you supposed to deal with thoughts that take you up to an edge of what's acceptable? And how are you supposed to decide where you cite yourself? I want to ask you about a book which I uh, linked to now scarred in my little introductory essay to the paper. (laughs) It's called Square. It's about a sculptor shaped like a square and you say Imogen it taps into fears of artistic failure perfectionism and imposter syndrome <laughs> and this is a picture book yes aimed at aimed at well because it's so witty I think it's probably a slightly older picture book it's probably sort of four or five plus you're starting to really appreciate the all of the irony the and thing is that square isn't actually a sculptor oh. it's squares work is to go and fetch a block every day from this cave and to take it up to the top of a hill. Exactly. <laughs> and to leave it there. And this is his work. But, but one is day, it hard? Yes, it's true. But one day the lovely, wafty, brilliant circle happens by and notices that the blocks are the same shape as square. And so she tells him that he is, in fact, a sculptor of genius. But this precipitates this enormous sense of self-doubt, especially when she says, you have to do one of me. Um, you have to, she doesn't say this, but obviously the joke is you have to create the perfect circle. <laughs> Um, and the things that Square says as he as he tries to bash away at this block and he just he makes a complete pig's ear of it. His great sorrow, he says things like, Oh dear, 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 oh crumbs, oh dirt. Um, <laughs> it's so satisfying <laughs> and hilarious. And then it, it, he thinks he's going to stay up all night in order to, to finish and sort out the terrible mess that he's made and the deadline is so imminent, Circle's going to come by and then, of course, he falls asleep in the middle of it. It resonates so deliciously with anyone who's ever tried to commit to a creative endeavour and then been horrendously <laughs> <laughs> balked. Um, non-fiction. Yes. How ambitious is that? A genre in the realm of children's literature and how much of it is just rehashing rebel girls over and over and over again because if i i feel like when I go, i've got a nine-year-old daughter and i feel if i go to a bookshop with her it's just another version of nighttime stories for rebel girls yes well i'm i'm not a big good night stories um fan i have to say i think it looks pretty but it's a bit on the clunky side yeah. the good news is that there are many glorious alternatives a big one is one that I touch on the piece which is David Roberts suffragette if you want proper history for probably about seven plus but it is ambitious big tough exciting history and so amazingly illustrated and it's just clear how much of a passion project it is for him he loved the process of writing it and he takes you with him with his enthusiasm um, which is something I think that Rebel Girls sort of fails to do it sort of sets up right here we go all these amazing women and what they do but actually it's quite a flat feel yeah. it doesn't make you feel excited whereas Suffragette really does make you feel excited and he, he doesn't he doesn't shy away from the darker no, no he absolutely doesn't you know you have to be you have to be tough enough to deal with the fact that he will tell you 
just how appalling the effect of force feeding was on the health of some of the women who suffered it. He will show you that women were injured and died in the course of, of fighting for the vote. But then that's the sort of thing that you don't necessarily get in this slightly more twinkly, mm. aimed at younger readers, condensed, sparkly versions of these of these feminist stories. It is proper history. It's very ambitious and it's great. Ambition is what you're calling for, really. Yes. All of it. It, it, you don't have to be not ambitious because you're writing for children. Exactly. Across the board. And I think that so many people do understand that. So many children's authors understand that. We should, all of us, publishers, critics purchases children definitely celebrate ambition children love to be told this is grown-up strong meat but you can handle it mm-hmm. equally obviously you have to offer them comforting uh, stuff and you have to say it's fine to go and reread your beast quest book for the millionth time because that's what you need to do now and this is what we would do as adults as well but at times when it's all like oh this is this is quite dangerous and powerful i'm not sure if you're ready but let's give it a go that's absolutely what children want Imogen Russell-Williams, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. Prime Minister's questions in the UK Parliament is generally an exercise in the self-satisfied futility of the political process. Lots of sound and fury signifying nothing. A new insider's guide to the wretched spectacle called Punch and Judy Politics has been written by Tom Hamilton and Aisha Hazarika, both of whom have been involved in prepping opposition leaders for PMQs. Until Margaret Thatcher, a PM could dodge questions by referring them to someone else in government. That's why the first question is always about what the PM's plans for the day are. Nobody else could answer it, so the PM was on the hook for the supplementary question. Now it's accepted that once a week the Prime Minister must answer questions from around the House, including six from the Leader of the Opposition. It's shown on TV and political journalists tweet a lot about it. But does it matter? And is it a good use of everybody's time? No, seems to be the irresistible answer, but Zoe Williams is here to analyse it in rather more eloquent detail than that. Zoe, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. PMQs, does it matter? I really like that intro where you say, you know, the reason the first question is always about the Prime Minister's plans, she has to do it, she has to answer because nobody else can answer. Even that throws up such a huge amount of questions. Why can only she answer? Surely her secretary could answer or her husband could probably answer or her cleaner could probably answer. So, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of kind of ermine hung on this stuff. There is. Oh, this is a very precious business and you're in the know if you understand it. And in trying to explain it to you, I'm going to explain it in such a way that you also won't understand, but you'll feel like you're not in the know unless you pretend to understand. That is what it boils down to. <laughs> you know, it's The importance of it is that it's a way to show you're in the know in Westminster. Does and it scrutinise the government? Though? No, not at all. Not, not at, all. at all? Not absolutely, absolutely not at all. What you get, sometimes people are really good at it, like William Hague, the book, the book talks a lot about William Hague. And, I mean, I did not get the sense of his being really good from the book, but I do remember him He was being, famous for it, I wasn't do remember yeah, him remember being famous him well. for it. There are quite nice descriptions, like he has this thing called the poison pincer, which is a question to which both the answer yes and no are equally poisonous. Um, <laughs> it's quite nice in that chess movie way to imagine him trying to cook that up, like imagining a cryptic crossword setter or, you know, somebody trying to get two horses to mate or something. Um, 
but it kind of isn't meaningful. Mm, surely and there are better uses of his time. Yeah, there are better start. uses of his time. Being trounced in PMQs, often you're trounced about the wrong thing. It doesn't really have any consequence. It doesn't really feed in. It doesn't really feed into the media unless they've decided you're dead anyway. You don't, like you, don't think you, cha- you don't think wrestling. you can change the narrative? No. no, not at all. Because if you look at William Hague, he's a brilliant example. He was well. He was famous for being really great at PMQs, even though it was kind of invisible to the naked eye. But it never made any difference to his electoral standing, to his standing with anyone. And also, you, you mentioned there that it's virtually invisible to the naked eye. I found a statistic somewhere that I think only a th- 1% of the British public even watch the thing. But and, it's supposedly think, for our benefit, I think transparency. That's, that's be- well, exactly. So, they, so there were, it's called a benefit because they'll be held to account. Now, I don't think that works at all. I think they are, when they're caught out, they're caught out on the wrong things. When they're not caught out, they're not caught out on the things they should be caught out on. I don't think it works. For instance, the, if you look at the, the coalition government, Sometimes Labour did a not bad job of catching them. Sometimes Labour did an absolutely appalling job. Sometimes Labour weren't even trying to get them because they were Mm. intending to vote with them or abstain. There was a huge range of kind of PMQ behaviour in that five-year period and nobody really cracked the problem of the fact that they were completely destroying the public services, the NHS, Mm. and people's living standards. They're never going to admit to it. No. Because you make a point, an interesting point about cameras going into Parliament. And I wonder whether there's a broader point about politicians. They're so well-trained now, Mm. and they practice so hard for this. If you catch them out, it's just because they're having a bad day. Most likely, they'll be able to fence away from it forever. And it's like with with those Pax Mess political interviews. They're so good at not saying... The but answer. actually, the but actually, yeah. they're not good at it, are they? Because mm. they, what, they, what they, they do, they come across terribly. And put, Theresa May is a really good example of this because she was, she's famous. They've they've done some research. This guy, Sheffield, I think, did some research into the ways in which PMs specifically evade questions. And it was quite surprising, actually, the average evasion, like the the way times in which the question wasn't answered, was only eighteen percent. I would have put the average at more like fifty percent, but actually hers was. 48%. She's the most evasive Prime Minister we've ever had. She always starts and with she, let me be clear as well. Yeah, well that, that was a Cameron <laughs> thing, wasn't means it? It's like, let me be clear, yeah. let me be clear. They and all it was, do it now. And they all do it now, mm. and I don't know why they thought that was a good thing when he did it, because it wasn't good and it didn't make you feel any clearer. But the thing is, with Theresa May, the way she avoids a question, evades a question, is that she takes a specific question and turns it into a generality. So if somebody says, are you going to bomb Syria? She says, if you're asking me whether it's a good idea, for a wealthy nation to bomb a poor nation. She gets around it that way. As you say, it's quite slick and it has it has the kind of veneer of a kind of moving conversation in which you understand the terms. But actually, it's completely meaningless and everybody can see it for the meaninglessness. So I don't think the problem is that it doesn't hold people to account. I think the problem is that it schools them in a behaviour which is totally alienating when you watch it. Act, you go so much. Well, I went. I, I sometimes go, but only to see John Crace, the Guardian guy, because <laughs> yeah. I like him. I've been a couple of times. I've been once when it was Cameron and Miliband. Yeah. And at that point, there was a kind of it was awful, but there was a sort of powerful tribalism at work. Both sides were. It was near an election. Yeah. Both sides were geared up, and so it was very theatrical and lots of jeers and. But didn't you find it disgusting? It is disgusting. It's awful. But then I saw it with May and Corbyn, <laughs> and 
the backbenchers hated both of their leaders. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it was like it was before, but with no atmosphere yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah. So it was kind of even more depressing in, in well, a Well, I suppose in a way you could say it's quite telling in that sense. I mean, there was a, there was yeah. a, the, the book makes a point that it's not a bad performance management function for the government and its departments because the, the PM going into them has to say to everybody what is going to come up and what am I going to be um, slayed with. That's not a bad discipline for government ministers to get into, saying, oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid there have been 102 prison suicides, which you might not have noticed. I mean, I think for the whole performance of it, for the time-consuming fandango, just so that government ministers are honest with their prime minister, is, is just stupid. Can we talk briefly about David Cameron? Yes, Because he quite famously said that he was, you know, we, we've listened and we're, we're aware that people don't really like this and it's got bullyish and, and too banterous and so I'm, we're going to reform it somehow. And then that never happened. And in fact, I think he was told that he was being far too much of a bully. And I, I mean, look, David Cameron was such a shallow character that yeah. it's almost impossible, even in this kind of quite recent retrospect, it's impossible to believe he wasn't more castigated for mm. the way he behaved because... He would say one thing and then behave in precisely the opposite way, and there was there was apparently no moral compass and no consistency and no no substance to any of his ardently held beliefs. But you know that kind of calm down, dear, mm. the kind of nastiness, the born to rule. Um, he was ugh, incredibly patronising, really belittling. Patronizing. Do you remember that Dennis Skinner moment where he stood up and he was so impassioned and he. He he was saying about how these the latest round of cuts to disability allowance meant that blind people were marching, and isn't this a disgrace? And David Cameron just stood up, looked at him, and said, oh, "I can see he really enjoyed that." Ugh, just, he's just, yeah. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> but we live in a country where actually that sort of person with that sort of background, we instinctively as a nation crook the knee to it. You see it all the time. Do you remember the first Big Brother? Oh, posh, yeah, yeah, with the, the posh, posh guy. Posh guy. Do you everyone... think me and you are the only two people who remember that now, though? Yeah, Nasty Nick. Do you yeah, 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 yeah. You don't I'm aware of him. Yeah, you won't remember Nasty Nick. My point is, he lingered as a cultural yeah. reference. You do, and you see it often. Boris Johnson is a, is a classic yeah, yeah, example. Yeah, Jacob yeah. Rees-Mogg is another good example of it, where instinctively we see someone who's been to a public school, maybe it's conscious, maybe it's subconscious, we sort of go, well, they must know what they're doing yeah, a yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. But, and but Cameron actually, kind of benefits, as did Clegg. Well, also, but that's, that's another reason why PMQs, I think, is more damaging to the political culture than we perhaps acknowledge, which is that it does play to the skills of people who are educated in that way. Yep. We believe that they know more than they do and that they're more competent than they are. But it also excludes a lot of voices from politics because you think, I just wouldn't even know where to start standing up with some weird guy ask me a poison pincer and, mm. and then loads of people scream at me and then yeah. somebody, ready tells with a quick to, Latin somebody tells me to calm down and then somebody else quotes Cicero. Mm. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't know where to start. And, and the fact of that exclusion which I think wasn't such a big thing in the 60s before PMQs became the thing it is now because there was less of a sense of the of that kind of theatricality to it. I just think that's really damaging. But isn't that in, actually in the context of things like social media or question time, even the televised question time, which is a complete bare pit of nonsense as well. Mm. Isn't PMQs yeah. a kind of, it's kind of a, it's another symptom, but in the scale of symptoms, it's kind of quaint. Actually, the thing that really cheapens public discourse is social media. It's people going on and mm. telling people they're going to die and they're going to rape them. And that, that's, that's where the real morass in, in our political discourse is. Because you say that, but actually I'm much more terrified 
of Boris Johnson not having a clue, presuming to grab the reins of a horse he doesn't even know which end is the head. Yeah. I'm much more terrified of that as a debasement of not just our culture but our national life than I am about some crank telling another crank that they wish they would die. Yeah. I mean, I just... Because Boris Johnson would be good at PMQs. Oh, yeah, 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 he's sure actually, he'd be he's great. The best thing he is, whenever yeah. I've seen him speak, he's very good off the cuff. The worrying thing is that in place of any kind of significant thought and detailed analysis and honesty and patriotism, actually, what we've got is a kind of rag ragbag of people who are very good at performing, performing those things. Do you blame journalists for this, though, a little bit? Because it's fetishised, isn't it, in the business? If you're a political journalist, because of what you do, you sit, I was sat in the press gallery with everyone, they're all tweeting their remarks they lionize good performers you know corbyn's endlessly analyzed as good at pmqs or not good at pmqs he had a better one today actually literally today he did have a better one did but, he have a better one uh, i don't ever uh, watch it but the media class put a lot of weight on it don't they do they i mean I, the thing, I mean if you look at if you look at the kind of composition of the lobby you've got the the people who really watch pmqs are the sketch writers and they only watch it in the absence of like something else to do a sketch on the kind of serious granular people are all getting it from sources. They're not getting anything from PMQs. Yeah. You, you've never had a breaking story from a PMQ. There might have been like a particularly nasty exchange which would become... Yeah, or well, there's a particularly embarrassing moment yeah. from the Prime Minister that they can ask, it happens on a Wednesday morning and then the Labour leader or the Tory leader, whoever's in opposition, can ask a question yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you would never, but it would never, if, you, if, you, if there were actually a story about something that had happened... It would never emerge in PMQs, which I think gives the lie to the fact that it holds the government mm. to account. If it's yeah. going to emerge, it will already have emerged. And there are so many em embarrassing moments happening yeah. all over exactly. the place anyway that you don't need PMQs. And you actually, just need to send Theresa May to Africa to dance. I know, I know. And, that and actually, the, um, that's her best moment in two years of being Prime Minister, <laughs> African dancing, isn't it? Do you not think? Oh. I actually thought that because so many of us, and I'm saying us deliberately here, hate being forced to dance and have that empathetic <laughs> moment of being dragged onto a dance floor and doing a herky-jerky. I kind of think that was the most normal thing she's ever done. I wrote a column that week saying I'm just so awe-inspired by the fact that she gets out of bed every morning. Yeah, <laughs> I keep saying whenever I do anything on TV, if I were yeah, her, yeah, I she's know, got I some just, money, she's I got a nice relationship with her husband, why don't they just say that? Let's just go! I would be out of this, I would be out of that office yeah. and out of this country yeah. like a rabbit out of a trap. Yeah, I'd be living in a, you know I mean? I'd be living in a lovely French village somewhere yeah, 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 uh, with some yeah, yeah, money and just thinking, I do not need yeah. this endless... Enjoying walks without calling snap general elections yeah, just, yeah. just for the walk. Yeah. I mean, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? But it's a funny thing. That's a, it's a big, Tony Blair said about PMQs, it's the most nerve-wracking, discombobulating, nail-biting, bowel-moving, terror-inspiring, courage-draining experience. So they kind of fetishise well, it as well, I mean, this, this is quite an interesting point as well because the, the, the reason Tony Blair found it that way was because he felt basically teflon and he felt that way in himself and he felt and journalists felt it around him yeah. he was so well protected he was protected by his own intellect he was protected by Alistair campbell of course he was protected by the fact that he had a plan the only way you could wrong foot him was in that environment you know if you look at theresa may now she can be wrong footed Almost everywhere, yeah, 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 by herself, by, <laughs> I remember by watching, anything. When, when the Iraq report came out and Blair was out of office and he, he came back to do an interview, to do a press conference, mm. the day of the Iraq report, which had been kind of critical but not as well, critical the as it might, The chill yeah. Critical but not as critical as it might have been, but mm. still enough there. And I remember watching it for two hours, he stood there and the best of the British media 
threw questions at him yeah. in an area where he was arguably morally compromised. Oh, my God. Uh, he's just completely... And he could just handle it. The only way you could really touch him was in this kind of highly formalised pantomime, um, in this highly formalised pantomime. But actually, coming back to your point about social media, I think it's really weird to kind of consider what PMQs would be like if he kind of came back tomorrow, because he was probably not a custom. He n- nothing in the period 97 to 2010 accustomed any of us to politics as it is now really kind of viperous unplanned (laughs) world i don't know whether he would have mastered it in the same way i think that's probably right i think that's probably right Uh, that's all we've got time for zoe alas we could talk about this uh, for a very long time thank you very much to zoe williams and our thanks also to andrew motion and imogen russell williams too do make sure you pick up a copy of the tls or subscribe to it this week is our fiction special including an account of what seems to me to be the baffling success of Nausgaard. Until next week, we're going to be doing a life writing special, which should give us plenty to talk about on here. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.